0: Hello, Chris Evans here. Thank you for downloading this special edition of the podcast. This week we spoke to a man who needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. Dapper Dave,
1: it's over to you. The new book Tales of Boomtown and new album Citizens of Boomtown are both out next month and here to tell us no, more. You're Is... No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. you got the name wrong. What's the name? Evans, I think this that... show has gone pear-shaped the already. For Tales of Boomtown glory.
0: I don't write the intros. Of... I've got some amazing questions for the interview. Uh, okay. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> the new book, Tales of Boomtown Glory, and new album Dave, Citizens Dave, of Boomtown Dave, are but bo- can you imagine working with him for two and a half years? <laughs> Absolute nightmare. <laughs> Made him a fortune. Okay, here we go. <clears throat>
1: the new book, Tales of Boomtown Glory, and new album <laughs> Citizens of Boomtown are both out next month and here to tell us more. Is a co-writer of one of the biggest selling singles of all time, a rock star, a knight of the realm, a charity founder, and a man with a real life detail. It is, of course, the one
0: and only <laughs> Sir Bob Gelder! <laughs> Yeah, eye, ear, uh, <laughs> pulse for detail. Really annoying, actually. But great to have you here, Bob. Thanks, uh, man. Bob, I love your book, Tales of Boomtown Glory. You Thank speak you. beautifully, but you write even better. You should write more, really. I mean, uh, can you do me a favour? Can you read out those two paragraphs from your own book, if you don't mind?
1: Is that the bit with the cursing, you know? No. Oh, dear. No. <laughs> a bit of a circle, then
0: circle. It's about songwriting. Off you go.
1: Yeah. Uh, OK. For sure there are lines in rock that are as incandescent as anything written by the poetic greats. But they're just that, a few lines. The complete song, however, may ultimately leave you as moved as the greatest poem. It is not a lesser form. Leonard Cohen is an OK poet, but a great lyricist. Bob Dylan's earlier songs are awful poetry, but superb lyrics with poetic sounding imagery. Pop doesn't have to make sense. It just has to feel sense. It it inhabits an emotional intelligence rather than a rational or intellectual or empirical one. Lyrics don't have to be about anything, a truth or an apparent truth that can be beyond actual meaning. Coherence is not required. What is required of a song lyric is an idea that fits around the music or vice versa, rather than any metaphoric or practical reasoning. And therein lies the difference between the poet and the lyricist. It's the tune, stupid.
0: (laughs) What a lovely way to describe it. I had no idea. What a great insight from a musician and a lyricist into what he does for a living and the difference between a lyricist, a great lyricist and
1: a great poet. You can, of course, be both, Bob. You can, but um, I've never heard to take a great poet, um, the great Irish poet, who's uh, my master, uh, you know, I, I, but I mean by that I mean I never tried to copy him or one can't, but just simply he's just too good. Um, uh, the Waterboys put a whole album of his songs to music. Uh, Van Morrison's Crazy Jane on God. Van is always referring to, to Yeats and that. A lot of the Irish bands, the lads are nodding their head, constantly refer to his use of language. And he called his own poems lyrics. But when you put his his words to music, a, f- a famous um, Irish um, traditional song, down by the Sally Gardens, which originally was a Yeats poem. They're pretty crap. Um, it doesn't really work because the poet can sum up. Um, he's only got words and meter and scansion to say what he needs to say. Whereas the subtext of pop songs are um, the underlying music, the the rhythm, the melody, the note selection, uh, the, the, the 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 solo choice the meter, the scansion, the rhythm, all of that lies under just what appears to be a simple lyric and so it carries you forward into the emotional universe it wants to take you into. Now it's a bit early in the morning for this sort of stuff as, <laughs> as, the, world, as the world switches oh dear, what's on the other channel? No, but, no, no, you know. our listeners have all this, of course they do uh,
0: but the thing the thing you, you do have in common, all artists have in common is they want to get something from inside out Yeah. Uh, and you, you did that, you know, during your first job in the abattoir, you were writing things down, you were writing your feelings down, mm. What is it about an artist that makes them apart from sort of, you know, I don't know, uh, self-soothing if you like, but what, what is it that makes artists want
1: to get things out? In, in the case of the abattoir I was working, it was a slaughterhouse of dreams rather than an abattoir for animals. The people working in there were hopeless and had nowhere else to go. They were as trapped as the animals that we were killing. And, um, I mean, for me, I was a kid. I knew there was something else. I wasn't sure what. I knew I had to go and chase it and find it, and I needed some cash. I didn't know I was writing... Uh, our first number one the first Irish number one ever or the first new wave number one I didn't understand that I didn't think I was writing a song I was just writing uh, a story about the people that were around me to what end I would no idea so when the second Rats album <coughs> A Tonic for the Troops was coming to an end, the producer, Mutt Lange, who went on to do ACDC and, uh, you know, Shania Twain and The Cars and uh, everybody, Muse, all those people. And he was a young kid too. Uh, he said, we're missing the track. Code Line will understand that you're, you're doing an album, but there's some something that's not complete about it, this work sort of thing. And I said, I don't have anything. He said, it must have something. So... A long story short, I said I've been, I've got this thing that I just had years ago, and there's something about. It. He said, "Okay, read it to me." So I read it, and he said, "Have you got any music to it?" And I just played da da just just playing the guitar, G D E minor, Dam bam, bam, just do that, G D E minor, that's it. And so I said I'm just doing that and that became Bam 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 Da da, 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 da bam, bam 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 He said, That's good. Where does that go? And he just he just pulled like a loose thread on a cardigan. This thing that was bugging me for a few years now, since I started the Avatar, what is it, what is it? And he pulled it out to me. And uh, that was the complete album and it also bizarrely, we went on the Kenny Everett show and Kenny said, Will you do that track? I said, Yeah, and uh, the next day, people went to record stores when there were record stores, like in a movie, and asked for the song they heard. And it took us, get this, guys, 680,000 sales yeah. to get to number one. Wow. That's 680,000 people had to save their pocket money, walk down to a record shop. And ask for it. Ask for it. And they had to have it yeah. and look around at all the records and everybody else just to get there but we did kill Olivia Newton-John and John (laughs) Chabotty. Yes! Uh, I'm not happy happy with that side of the story, to be honest. Um, That that pours (laughs) pours water on the flames for
0: me. But but that started with you talking about the fact that... How old were you when you were in the abattoir? I was uh, 19. 19 years old. But you were still writing things down, because the question was, what is it in an artist that... It has to get something inside out. What is? It? Why were you writing these things down? Cause we, because we
1: there was no other thing. When I was as a kid. Yeah. So it wasn't great. My mum died at seven. Uh, my dad was a traveller. He had to he had to sell towels around the countryside of Ireland, rural Ireland in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Zero economy. There was no money in the house. Um, there was no telly. There was no phone. Uh, my sister didn't want to be uh, a surrogate mum at 17, so she got out and married the local cop quickly. My middle sister was the family SWAT, so she stayed in school and the nuns gave her her, her dinner. So I'd come home and it was crap. And I was, There was no self-pity, it was just not good and I'd make the fire because it was bloody freezing Ireland in February and uh, make my tea and because there was no one to make me do schoolwork i just read from the local library or the school library and listen to that one blessed station from the improbable microstate of Luxembourg yeah. which handed yeah. down to me through the purple rock and roll ether this golden <laughs> thread that I clung onto. You know, and I've since ferociously clung to, because it's the only thing that ever struck me as true. And the truth was that these boys and girls of 19 called Mick and Keith or John and Paul or Bob and Pete. were telling me things that it wasn't going to be always crap, that there were other universes, other possibilities, and that the language of that possibility was rock and roll, and the platform of that change was rock and roll, and change was coming. It was inevitable. It was desirable. You could help steer that change towards a world that was more acceptable of you. And that's what I... (laughs) took hold, that was all that was offered to me and so when it came time to try and work out this incoherent chap of 11 and 12, very afraid not having a good time uh, all you can do is articulate it through writing stuff down, that's it, because your mate's in school, forget it, there's no one at home anyway to talk stuff through the priest just beat you and uh, and that was it. And of course, you don't understand authority because your parents aren't there the polar centre of any child's world. That So you quickly learn what the parameters are allowed to you from your parents. Uh, but that wasn't there for me. So when I ran into the priests and they said, why aren't you wearing your tie, Gildhav? You know, and I said, because didn't feel like a father. Bang. And then subsequently later, it was a little more of a problem when you bumped into a cop. And you just didn't understand. You really didn't understand why they could tell you to do things. Yeah. And so you reacted against it. And next minute you were in Vine Street Police Station.
0: Yeah, but a minute later you were number one, um, which is uh, with 600,000 uh, copies of the record sold in the first week by people who had to go and find the record. They had to save the pocket, they had to get, in, to get yeah. out in the rain, they had to go and ask for the record, say, where's the record?
1: And that's a good point, because at that point... In, Prior to my long and involved story I've just told you, rock and roll was the central spine of our culture, yours and mine, probably proves. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is of code lines except it is their life. But everything came through that radio. All our ideas, all our moral, political, economic, social ideas were translated through this mediator of pop. So just take Of course, the Beatles, as an example, the ideas, just the things they said, the way they looked, you know, the the immediate lack of deference, they just sort of chuckled their way through life that, you know, but told you it was all positive. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three times. It's not just once. It's the end of Ulysses by James Joyce. Yes. So when we pitched up uh, in London... I actually lived on the street for a while, so because uh, I, I didn't have money, I stayed in church crypts uh, just opposite Holborn Tube. There's a beautiful Baroque church. You could go down into the crypt and sleep there. And uh, but somebody said you can stay in a squat in Notting Hill, you know, and I went up you. there and I said nope. <laughs> I <ain't staying." laughs> It was grim. And then you know, literally, you know, when the rats showed up here in '76. Uh, they said, you know, listen, if you make some money, get in on this Notting Hill thing. So he's kidding me? So I went up there again. No, So that was 1976. There was no way. Still, Yeah, still. Uh, it wasn't uh, happening, no. you know.
0: Tell us about how come 36 years, new album out now.
1: Why? Well, what's, go, paused, what's going on? we paused, Chris. We paused. No, we know that. But, just, <laughs> so but why now? I, uh, there's a natural dynamic to the arc of a band. Um, we started in 1975 to put that in some sort of rock and roll context. New York was bankrupt. Uh, the mayor of New York asked President Ford to bail him out and President Ford famously said drop dead New York City. In Britain inflation was 27% in 1976 so of course you're going to get the Ramones and Blondie and the Talking Heads erupting in sort of rage out of New York. Of course you're going to get the sex pistols and the clash, you know just saying enough, you're not offering us a future and in Ireland it was worse we had a, in effect a civil war on the island with 3,600 people murdered, we had an, an entirely corrupt government. We had an entirely corrupt church busily abusing the children of their parishioners and we had a zero economy. So you get six kids from the suburbs saying enough of this sort of claustrophobia of silence that was, everyone knew, but we were enveloped in this, oh don't talk about it, don't let it out that's fine. No, we just make a noise. And uh, so by changing our own lives and making a noise, I think we helped to change the country. Then by having hit after hit after hit after it, I think there were 13 in a row we helped to change the music. And then through Band Aid and Live Aid we helped to change the world a little bit. And then we stopped. That's enough. Uh, we didn't really know where to go. There was a new crowd. There were new kids on the block. There were different things to say. So make way for, you know, Duran and Eurythmics and Spandau and Boy George and all, all those Prince, Madonna. They, they had come so it was the right place to stop and then I went and did seven solo albums and you've played a lot of those tracks thanks and and then the world sort of went pear shaped again in 2008 where countries were humiliated, millions were put out of work, tens of thousands unemployed and the resulting wars meant that people moved to get jobs or to escape the war and we threw up barbed wire and walls and oceans to stop them trying to make a life and I wanted to hear that noise again, a specific noise that speaks to me of this confusion as we elect fools to try and mediate this terrible chaos of the now. So someone again, I thought, had to sing the blues of now. And if that was just us playing to ourselves and that was it but these men that I've known all of my life literally since maybe about 13 they're the ones who can do this racket as Bono called it that glorious noise of the Boontown (laughs) Rats and uh, and you know once we came back uh, Gary came to me and said would you be prepared to do it again I said I don't think so you know I don't I don't like nostalgia and he said well we can do the Isle of Wight Festival and I said main stage and he said yes 100,000 people that's my vanity <laughs> and um so uh we did it and we killed it. And it turned out that looking after number one, that, 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 that rage of... Uh, for, I wrote it on the Dole Queue in Dunleary in South Dublin in, in the summer of 1969 when i just left school. And I wrote the first line, the world owes me a living. I don't want to be like you, I'm going to be like me. And come 76, it's out of the box a hit because that exactly, given the conditions here, were what kids felt. And then when we did Rat Trap, it was for everyone, not in an abattoir, but feeling trapped. When we did I Don't Like Mondays, it wasn't for a school massacre in 1979. It was for last week's school massacre. When we did Banana Republic, it wasn't any longer about the Irish Republic, which had thankfully grown up. It was about the American Republic, which, you know, sinks into political infantilism on a daily basis. So it was all about now. And when I sang it at the Isle of Wight, 100,000 people were going yes. And uh, I thought, okay, so what bands do, as you've just heard, is they write tunes. They write, that's their job. They can't stop it. It's your earlier question, you know, what happens to someone who does that? It just, you can't stop it. Sometimes it's good, sometimes not so good. And this stuff, and we were talking about it off air, the Bobby Boontown guy, he suddenly felt that relevant again. Uh, solo Bob Geldof does internal stuff, Prue was just reading some of the words and she just pointed to one she liked, one out of 650 thanks Prue Um, and uh, you know it was, what's it, it's an internal song, Uh, these ones are not, I got into trouble at your festivals that Chris does for kids every year, huge he's made millions every year, never taken a penny, people don't know that but I'll say it now so big up Chris Evans Absolutely um, and he put he put he put um, the solo band on, which I still love. I'm playing in Germany with them next week, proper band. And um, unfortunately, I was doing a Rat song, so that other character. Don't want to get all David Bowie on everybody suddenly in the morning, <laughs> but that other character, Bobby Boontown comes out, and he doesn't care. He really doesn't care. Doesn't care what he says. Doesn't care what he does, and could care less about the consequences, which is useful that I can blame him. <laughs> and um, so he got he got going, and how he got going was I said, "How do I find this guy again?" You know, because I'm I'm now in my dotage, mellow and a considered chap, <laughs> and um, and I said so I started this tune. I'm going to Boomtown. I'm going back back to Boomtown, because that's where I'm at. And when I get to Boomtown, I'm going to ask those cats what's happening here in Boomtown. And they'll say, it's those rats, those rats, those filthy rats, the Boomtown rats. And, and then I invite everyone back in. I say, do you want to come to Boomtown? Meet you around the back, between the dirty alley and those Boomtown flats. They're dedicated to St. Boomtown. He's the patron, saint the crap. He's praying for a miracle, but what he gets is those rats. Those rats. And seriously, once I was... I was, you know I don't want to say the word but I was peeing myself yeah. laughing and yeah. I, was, I was right there and I, I could hear 100,000 people going the boom town rats <laughs> so we, we did that and we recorded it and uh, so I come back from with a solo band playing three nights on the trot to 80,000 people in Germany not us but we're supporting a band called Die Totenhosen, which means the dead no, trousers the great band they, they did one of my songs their last album and I'm I'm match fit for the Isle of Wight, and I've got a friend who's got a helicopter who said, "Give us four tickets, I'll fly it down." So I rock star into the Isle of Wight. I've got a pretend um, snakeskin suit made by down in Brick Lane. So I'm large again. You know, I'm a, I'm a mega rock star again. I'm back. You know, Bobby's in the house, but the others are crapping themselves because they've been you know doing all the other gigs, smaller gigs. And we get to the side of the stage and we're going to start with the the track, the Boomtown Rats, because I want to hear 100,000 people chanting our name. So I'll tell them to do that, to this track. But it's, a, it's the Muhammad Ali moment. You know the famous shot of Ali standing over Sonny Liston? Yeah, yeah. And he's just going, what's my name? What's my name? And he's just in a list and is totally unconscious at this stage. So I say to the MC, are you going to announce us? And Gary and Simon are seriously crapping, you know. And like the guy says, yeah, OK, if you want me to. What do you want me to say? And and I said, well, what are you going to say? And he says, I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, the Boomtown, I said, give me, give me that microphone. I go, are you? Bobby Boomtown's in the house. Are you effing <laughs> <you>, ready? <laughs> Arr, the Boomtown is <laughs> kicking off on the mic. The greatest rock and roll band in the world. And Gary and Simon are literally staring at me. He's gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest rock and roll band in the world. From Dun yeah, <laughs> and, and We walk out on stage and it kicks off and we're back. And so we make an album and we're back. And it's a the most boomtown rats I've no, ever it's he fantastic so, he was so
0: close then he was so close Bobby boomtown nearly hit the airwaves then let me tell you his mouth made one shape but thank heavens uh, that, that, that particular syllable didn't seem to thrown come out into the world after the car festival oh my god well, it's so great to hear you talking um, so there are sliding doors moments and there are sliding doors moments or are there any at all who knows Krishnamurti said everything is meant to uh, everything is meant to be and will happen which is different to everything happens well, for a reason which the, you know, the
1: Irish yes. Oh
0: Krishna, Chris, oh, Krishna Murthy. Murphy. Krishna, Krishna Murphy, Murphy of yeah, yeah. Um, But does, does everything happen for a reason or not? Are there such things as sliding door moments? Or, it, you know, the point is we're going towards Live edge. So what happens is uh, Bob and the Boomtown Rats have a singer act called Dave. It's yeah. not doing as well as they want it oh, to. Yeah. So, so Bob goes to the record company offices and has a word with them, get us on top of the pops. That's not going to happen. So he ends up arriving home early one afternoon.
1: Yeah. Um, there was a we had a few grand left in to, to prove point in the bank, and getting desperate because we really thought we'd made a good track here, but the truth is our time had been and gone and i was not prepared to face that so i gave gary uh, who lives in the midlands and simon who lives in the west country a couple of grand or a grand each they have big motorbikes um, you know huge motorbikes i said go and buy as many copies of dave in the midlands and the west country as you possibly can from in those days chart return shops um if you sold records in those shops you go into the charts might thinking was if we can buy enough tracks to get into the top 40 we'll get top of the pops if we get top of the pops it was so powerful back in those days you'd have a hit and then once people hear and see us again we're back and um, uh, we obviously didn't have enough money to buy uh, enough, enough enough records of of Dave, um, so I come home to your point. I come home. I'm home by six. Now, if you're in rock and roll, you just that's a measure of where we were at. You're you're really not home at six. You're rehearsing. You're writing. You're recording. You're doing interviews. You're doing gigs. You're traveling. You're really not at home at six. I was home. Um, I just had a, a, a my first baby little girl and my missus had put her to bed and we sat down and watched the 6 o'clock news. Uh, In those days, there was ITV and and BBC only, so what I hadn't sort of counted on was that the whole country is watching the the 6 o'clock news. Anyway, uh, it comes on and top of the story is a 10-minute report on a famine in Ethiopia, in Africa, which the brilliant journalist Michael Burke had stumbled upon as he was on his way north to cover the longest-running war of the 20th century, which was the Ethiopian Civil War. And it was simultaneously shameful, disgusting, horrific, and anger-inducing. Here... The journalist had made the report with such elegance, with such a a, a sense of shared humanity. At first, the camera is very wide, and the journalist barely speaks, he's so enraged. But out went, you know, journalistic objectivity. He was spitting Uh, his words. He was clearly ashamed and he spoke about a famine of biblical proportions and the camera goes wide and shows you this monstrous scene and then pitilessly the camera is a cyclops eye and focuses subjectively on these elegant men and women in tattered togas, mums and dads, um, holding... Children, but with swollen heads and tiny stick bodies, like I hope people don't think this take this wrong, but like they were Martians or something like, like they were barely human, like we had barely allowed them to be human. And I was absolutely, as the journalist intended, appalled. And Paul and my missus beside me didn't sob she wasn't racked with tears but big tears came out of her eyes and she jumped up and ran up the stairs to see our kid and um, so the report's over and it stays with me most of the night bizarrely Chris this is wild because we've just finished a two hour film on the rats which I was telling the lads in the band that were the world premiere is in Dublin, the Dublin Film Festival on March the third. It's going out on BBC. It's a it's a great film, even though it's about us, it's it's kinda of interesting, though I didn't know we were interesting. And um uh they found a piece of film. So fast forward two hours after I've seen this, it's going around in my head and I'm at uh, some record company do or something. And the camera is on me for some reason. I'm talking to some guy, I don't recognise him. And he's saying, this isn't bad, is it? And I said, it makes me sick. And he said, what does? And I said, all this food and drink, you know. And I said, did you see that thing on TV last night, t- tonight? And he said, no. And I said, oh, and I just let it pass. Well, I didn't know that existed. So this is an hour after I've seen this. So the next morning... Um, my Mrs. Paula, she's doing the rock and roll show at that time, which people of a certain age will remember, called The Tube with Jules Holland. who was Paulie Yates and Jules Holland. Paula had left to go to Newcastle, where the show was filmed, and she'd left a note in the bowl on the, the kitchen table saying, anyone who comes to this house has to put five quid in this bowl. And I thought, that's cool, but it's not enough. This is... The journalist had told us that 30 million people were dying of hunger. And that made me sick. To die of want in a world of surplus is not only intellectually absurd, it is economically illiterate and it is, of course, morally repulsive. And I thought, well, the only thing I can do is write tunes. But I'm not having hits. So what's the point of that? So I called Paula in Newcastle. I said, who's on the show? And she said, well, Midge is here beside me. Midge, you're from Ultravox, who just had a huge hit with that fantastic song, Vienna. And I said, put him on. And I said, dude, did you see that thing last night? And he said, no. And I said, "Um," uh, so I told him, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, listen, we're coming up to Christmas. Let's do one of those corny charity singles let's make a hundred grand and give it to Oxfam and he said yeah of course he said um, what are you thinking of and I said because I had no confidence now any longer in my ability I said um, you know let's just pick a Dylan or a Bob Marley tune One Love or something, something that anything let's just get on with it and he said you're joking he said, he said you knock something off and I'll try something and let's go with it and that I mean Midge thinks I'm nuts but that literally a, a fellow songwriter and again, the guys behind me will understand this, Um, just saying, that's what you do, you know, and you're equal to me. I've just had to get on with the Geldof. That really got me going again. So on the way over to my mate's house, he was sick, uh, I had a song called It's My World, which I played to the rats, but they didn't want to, They didn't like it. And it was called It's My World and There's No Need to Be Afraid. So I just said, it's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. What's next? Wasn't there to be afraid of? It's great here. It's fantastic. We're coming up to this time where everything is shared and we give gifts because we love people. But dude, <laughs> the reality is outside the window. It's not fun at all. And so I wrote the words very quickly, and I went to my mate's place, and he had a guitar, and I just played the melody of It's My World and There's No Need to Be Afraid. I just did that because that'll do. That afternoon, a tape came around. And I put on the tape player and it was do doo 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 do and I rang I rang Midge, he goes, What do you think? And I said, Dude, it's Zed cars. Zed cars is an old sixties police movie. You know, he said he said, What? And I said, It's Zed Cars. Do 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 doo, doo And he says, it's Better than any shape you could write <laughs> Which is true, you know. But uh, and so I went over to his place. He had a mega studio. He's a, Midge is a fantastic producer. And I played in my thing and I was so embarrassed playing it. I was so bad at it and he said make up your mind what's the melody I said okay so I did that he said okay leave me alone go away and sort out who's ever going to play in it so we went away and this is absolutely true this is the sliding doors moment the next morning I leave my house and walk up flood street we talked about the King's Road earlier to the King's Road where I had my coffees in a cafe called the Picasso no long gone but I do meetings in there as well there used to be an antique shop there, and I passed by, and Gary Kemp, obviously the 80s, huge, Spandau, is there. We know all the 80s kids because they'd come and stay the night in our place in Kent, having done the tube, you know, just get away. Le bon used to literally just go to sleep on the floor with whatever girlfriend it was that weekend until Yasmin showed up. He'd just fall asleep. I'd wake him on Monday get back to work. And... uh I banged on the door, Kemp buying some, you know, Art Nouveau antique piece, you know, in his newfound wealth. And I, and I said, I said, oi, you know, and I said, we're doing that. He said, OK, I went into the Picasso. I came out and Sting was walking up the street. And uh, Sting had, you know, we'd known him since i we'd lived near where they were making their first album. We already had six hits. He could barely speak to me. His 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 competitive spirit was so, still is, you know. So he said, "Yeah, I'll do it." And uh, Le Bon was around the same day. So at the end of the day, we had the Rats, Ultravox, Duran. Spanned out the police. I knew I could call these new kids. Called you too, because they'd come and seen the rats, you know, and stuff when we played in the clubs in Dublin. So they definitely come on board. Uh, there we were. I Called up uh, Trevor Horn. I said, "You own." Basing Street Studios, which is where Bob Marley did Exodus and all that. Can we have them? Yeah. So it kind of we had the whole thing. The record company said, you know, I had to bludgeon them not to take any money. Then the publishers, we had to call them and say, no one's getting any money. And the worst came with the retailers, Woolworths, HMV, etc., I didn't want them to take any money. So I called Woolworths and they said, well, no, it's our big selling time. We understand what you're doing, but no. And I said, that's fine because HMV have forsworn their money. Virgin have forsworn their money, you know, etc. They said, all of them have. I said, yeah, all of them, yeah. And I said, but it's fine. Like, I'm going on telly, but I I will have to say not to go into your shop because... The profit will go. I said, well, can we come back to you? I said, no, you can't come back to me. It's a do or die. We're up to our neck, you know. I said, okay, fuck it. No, My, no, no. I, so I didn't well. say it. I I did not oh, say it. I know it's only a word. So, it's so silly, but that's where we are. So then, <laughs> then you go on and it goes monstrous. So we can't give, you know, it's the biggest selling record ever. Uh, we can't give the money talks. So I was just too much. So... Uh, the record company lawyer who I asked to give me two hours, he's still doing it. 35 years later, we're still doing it. What's his he, name? What's John his name? Kennedy. John Kennedy. Brilliant that, hats man. off to you. Yeah. So he then sets up a trust. Next minute, I'm sitting at home. I'm up to my neck in this, and the phone rings Are you Bob Geldorf? I said, Yeah. He goes, It's Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte, like, this is a hero. Harry Belafonte was the most beautiful black guy in America in the 50s, hung with Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra. Um, he was a Marxist. He was so beautiful. He had the first national um, television programme for a black person. He took slave songs from the Indies and put them in the number one in the Billboard chart in America, like a banana boat song, Deo slave songs. He took Frank Sinatra to the south, to show him what happened to black musicians. Frank refused to play there anymore if his black musicians didn't play to an integrated audience and they stayed in the same hotel as him. He took Martin Luther King as a kid and travelled with him, bigged him up. Harry Belafonte is a dude, still alive, the best stories. <laughs> um, he says, he says <laughs> we're ashamed of... You. He said, we're effing, we're... Ever been ashamed of what you brick kids have done? I said, Harry, I'm Irish. Same thing. Uh, No, you know, so much for your Marxist dialectic, you know. So um, he says, I got Michael here. Michael, hi, Bob. You know, I said, hi, Michael. He goes, me and Lionel are writing a song with Quincy. Do you want to come over? I said, yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. So I go to America. It's USA for Africa. I walk in, Quincy Jones, are you kidding me? Paul Simon, Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, Tina Turner, and I got Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet. <laughs> but excuse me, you know this is this, there are gods present, and Quincy Tapp says he, he's he's got his uh, there's you know his um, conductors ro- um, roster and he bangs down. Everybody, pay attention, please. And here are these giants of the culture all standing on these bleachers, you know, like school kids at the school play, all they're paying attention to the Quincy Jones. Of course you do. He goes, OK, everybody, you all know Bob Geldof. No, nobody knows Bob <laughs> Geldof. You know? so, so they're there. And Bob, tell them what this is all about. But, you know, uh, I, I mean, I was... You'd, you'd see in the photograph of USA for Africa for the group photo... I'm in the back row standing beside, um, who's the great comedian from Saturday Night Fever? Belushi, and who's the other? Aykroyd. I'm yeah. standing beside between them. Uh, and like, my face is, I've got my head down because literally I am not worthy. I really, what am I doing there? But at that event, that's when I thought, hold on. We put Band-Aid together with USA for Africa, which then became the biggest selling single, still is ever in the history of the world. So we put them together and I spoke to Bruce, who I'm still friendly with. In fact, I knew him from 78, the rats did, because he was trying to get going then as well. And I said, you know, are you up for doing something? He, says, he, said, he said, if I'm not doing anything, yeah, come back to me, you know. And I said, no, seriously, I said, I might do this. And in the film of USA for Africa, you'll see me saying, I may be back to all you people. Um, so that was where I thought, let's join these up so that was where the idea of of live aid really had its genesis as as this thing sort of took on a life of its own it needed to come to a head where the world was addressed as we started this whole conversation earlier this morning with Rock and roll, which had now become the global culture, the transmitter of ideas, the thing that opened up people trapped in the sort of aspic of the Cold War, trapped behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, You know, we could talk to them in the lingua franca of the planet, which was no longer English, but was pop music. And that was how we translate this idea. Do you agree that the death of 30 million people would be a body blow to the human corpus. That would be hard for us all, knowing that it was occurring, knowing we could stop it as Europe produced surplus grain, America produced surplus grain, knowing we could stop this in a continent eight miles from Europe, the richest continent separated by eight miles from the poorest, where 30 million people are in agony. It's agony to die of hunger. You actually don't die of lack of food. You die because your system collapses. And at that point, your muscles can't scream, so all those children were just opening their mouths to scream. Uh, you'll see it on the BBC news film; they're opening their mouths to scream, and nothing comes out except a ah, ah, at that, and they, it's agony. So we're doing Live Aid, and David Bowie, who could not do enough. He's the nicest man; God bless him. Um, he was the he wasn't the cold, aesthetic, thin, white Duke. He was a he was f- lovely guy and was since even the beginning of the Rats when I hitchhiked to Europe to try and get kids out of Dublin and I went to see the black and white thin white Duke tour one of the best gigs I've ever seen and I blagged backstage I was just sitting in his dressing room and he just looked over he says who are you I said I'm a singer in a band he goes what band is it and we just chatted to this doofus sitting in the corner and I got him to sign a rat's demo tape he said is that one of mine I said no it's one of mine he goes you cheeky (laughs) sod so I call him and he wears these appalling Feed the World t-shirts what do you want me to do so we're sitting late at night I say before we start David I want to show you this film and the CBC Canadian Broadcasting journalist could not show what he'd shot cuz it was just too much and he edited in the Addis Hilton Addis Ababa Hilton the bits he stringing it together just to for the record and he was listening to the cars who's going to drive you home on his headphones as he cut it and when he'd finished he'd realized that this pop song take on a whole different thing it's to the point of the essay you asked me to read who's going to pick you up When you fall down, who's going to drive you home tonight? And in the context of what he'd cut. So David was watching this with Harvey Goldsmith, the great promoter, and me, and the agony of these children. And he just collapsed. This is the empirical, distant, cold, thin white duke. Collapsed in tears and could not recover. And he said, "What do you want me to do again?" And I said, "David Bowie four songs." <laughs> you know, everyone's got fifteen minutes. You've got twenty, David. You know. <laughs> and he said, "He said I'm cutting it. I want to show this." And I said, "David, please. Once you cut it, people go and make a cup of tea. We've lost them. They're not coming back." And he said, "I'm doing. Th- I'll do three songs. I want to introduce this." I said, "You're going to do Heroes. I'll do Heroes before this. So if you watch it, the Queen movie has it that. The lines collapsed." When Queen played, Queen were superb. But everyone, everyone, watch it, reached above themselves for some reason. You talk about sliding doors. Just, they are the best performances by those bands ever. Ever. McCartney hadn't played for six years, nervous, crapping. The piano doesn't work. So out comes Bowie, me and Pete Townsend to help him through it. And the crowd just sing <laughs> Let It Be. I mean, and he just got He was just glowing. You know, it just kicked off. It was
0: divine help. Yeah. Divine on back, divine, back in verse So
1: vegetables. Bowie does Heroes. The crowd are heroes. Like, you know, cuts to Philadelphia. There's millions in Philadelphia singing Heroes. And he just says, thank you. I want you to pay attention to this. And he just leaves the stage. And it's the most beautiful day And here's beautiful youth, these beautiful boys and on their shoulders, these beautiful flowers, these girls in the prime of their youth. They're just in the day. They're just glowing. And you feel that everywhere. Vladivostok, Tierra del Fuego, they're all glowing in the day. And out comes this film by this CBC journalist. Who's going to pick you up? And you watch... It's particularly there's a shot I remember the girl and she's going yeah rock and roll who's going to be and, and she suddenly realises and, and, and she wilts and she tries to get off her boyfriend's shoulder he doesn't know what's going on he's watching the screen and there's just horror on their faces and it changes bang literally quite literally because there were only phone lines the phone lines around the world go down people trying to call in they go down and everyone scrambles I'm backstage going what the, what's going on <laughs> what are you doing you know but that's what happened
0: amazing so thank goodness Dave wasn't a hit is the
1: the thing isn't it I suppose well, poor as I, Dave I, like I say in the book when I you know um, of course America wouldn't let me call it Dave because I was writing a love song to one of the guys in the band whose girlfriend had died of a heroin overdose at the end of our tour and he called me at night and I had nothing to say, but the next morning I wrote Dave, which is just a word of love to a mate. And the American said, we can't have a man singing a love song to Don't another know, man. man. So change the words. I said, to what? Anything. I said, OK, rain. I said, rain will do. So I said, it's OK, do it. Uh, but it still wasn't a hit. All right, Bob, it's lovely to hear from you.
0: Um, Bob Geldof's been here, my old boss, forever my boss, actually. Um, his book, Tales of Boomtown Glory, out on the 13th of March. Citizens of Boomtown, the album, same day for a release, Friday the 13th of March. And you can see Bobby Boomtown um, live and unleashed. This is a UK tour with the band are back together. Ticketmaster.co.uk. And they are kicking off. Hang on a minute. I can do this for you, Bob. Don't worry about a thing. Um, They're kicking off in Brighton at the Dome in March. And then we've got Cheltenham, Birmingham, Liverpool, Cardiff, Cambridge, York, Manchester, London, Newcastle. All right, that's about it from us. A wonderful week. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Bob. Love to see you again. Thank you.
1: Thank you you The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio.
0: Thank you for downloading this special extra edition of the best of the Breakfast Show with Sky. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe for free to get our best bits every week.